This is Regin's Travels Podcast. Welcome to another episode of Regin's Travels Podcast. This is Regin Reino, and joining us today is Michael Poldi, a member of the Board of Governors of the Circumnavigators Club, one of the most exclusive travel clubs in the world. He is a photographer, an author, and CEO of his own company. He's been to all 50 United States and close to 50 countries. His most notable books are The Millennial's Guide to Business Travel, which was published in 2016, and his most recent one, Himalaya Memories, published in 2021. Hello, Michael. Welcome to the show. Hello, Regin. Thanks a lot for having me. How are you doing there right now? I'm doing fine. As you can guess, it's uh, it's it's the evening here in Los Angeles, and I know it's the morning where you are in the Philippines. So it's uh, I think it's always exciting, actually, when I can have a a international uh, type of type of conversation with someone on the other side of the planet. I, I miss I miss those days. I miss traveling to Asia. When was the last time you traveled abroad? Before the uh, last. Last week. Oh, okay. So you can start traveling now there in the U.S. Like yeah, yeah, yeah. It's um, it's not every country. Uh, as you can expect, there's a lot of restrictions, so you have to pick and choose. And uh, I had an opportunity to go to Germany last week uh, to wow. uh, uh, for mo- mostly for some uh, car uh, car experiences, which I know we'll talk about later today, but. Uh, but anyway, so I had an opportunity to go to Germany for a, uh, a meeting, and uh, and then I took a few days to drive around on the Autobahn and go see some really uh, very different, cool museums and fun things in that part of the world. But before that, it probably had been a couple of years since I had left the United States. Oh, I think that's really amazing, especially traveling on the Autobahn and driving a German car. You were driving a Porsche, right? Well, actually, um, on the Autobahn, I had two uh, two dri- experiences. I was driving a uh, a Porsche Taycan, which is their all electric Porsche, oh, and wow. uh, we had that on the Autobahn, and uh, we were driving around two hundred uh, kilometers per hour on that. Uh, and then uh, and then we rented a car. We had an Audi A7 sedan, which is a uh, Quattro uh, all wheel drive sedan, and and we were driving a lot faster. Uh, in in that car, I think we were up to like two two forty two fifty kilometers per hour, which is like one hundred and forty miles an hour. Um, it was pretty fast. <laughs> oh, this sounds really amazing. Oh, I would love to experience that one day as well. I, I, I've been there, but not driving. I was I was a passenger when I had my experience of the German highway, the autobahn, and it's really amazing. So someday, hopefully, I can drive there as well. I think that's a uh, an amazing experience and you've traveled a lot you've been to 50 united states close to 50 countries and currently you're one of the members of the board of governors of the the circumnavigators club you've been all over you've been to asia you've been to six continents wow what an amazing travel accomplishment so how did this all start your passion for travel well i think you know when we were uh when you asked me that earlier, as we were prepping for our show, I I really had to th- dig deep 
to figure out really where did that start from because 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 i'm an old guy now i'm uh, i'm i'm actually approaching 60 hard to believe but when i was a kid uh i grew up in florida and jacksonville florida which is the northeast part of this part of the state and for those of you who aren't familiar with the united states florida is in the southeast corner uh it's the peninsula surrounded by the atlantic ocean and the gulf of mexico and pretty much until i was 18 i never left the state of florida I got to travel around the state. My uh, my my grandparents they would on uh, pretty much on my mother's side of the family they traveled all over the world, and they were constantly coming back bringing me uh, little tchotchkes, little things like uh, dolls or camels or or hats from wherever they were in parts of the world, and and I was always fascinated by these little things that they would bring back because if we remember um back in the uh in the 60s and 70s um you couldn't go to walmart or target and pretty much get something from any place in the world so these gifts that were being brought back to me really you really could only get them in those parts of the world and then um independently my father also traveled a lot for business and he spent a lot of time a little bit in in, in uh, Europe but mostly in Asia he spent a lot of time in Hong Kong and a lot of time in China and Japan um, and that's again back in the time when you could go to those countries and you can purchase uh, purchase things like watches and cameras for a lot less than you can get them in the United States and um, and so I think between those two items that kind of germinated my uh, passion to go out and kind of see what was out there outside of Florida. And then when I went to college, I went to college in South Carolina. I, um, within the first couple of months, I went with a bunch of friends on a road trip to Chicago. And then uh, a few months later, I'm in New York City. And uh, pretty much from that point on, I was pretty hooked that there was a cool, awesome world out there. And I wanted to see it all. So what was your first country outside of the U.S.? Uh, actually, my first country outside the United States was Israel. I, uh, I went uh, with uh, some friends of mine were, were going to Israel to go uh, live on a kibbutz, which is a, a collective work settlement. Right. And, uh, and so we were going to go do that and then go travel uh, backpack across Europe. And, uh, and so what we did is we went, we went to, uh, Israel, we started on a kibbutz in the, uh, in the Golan Heights and which is right where the, uh, 67 border from the, the war of 1967 was, I mean, we were literally right there, right on the border. And within five days of arriving the, uh, I believe it was called the, the Lebanon war of, uh, of 1982 that started and, and so we're watching F-16s fly over We're we're seeing Katusha rockets explode about two kilometers in a valley from where I was in the kibbutz. I spent a night in a foxhole. I spent a couple of nights in a bomb shelter. And then once the, uh, once the Israeli army kind of pushed the uh, Palestinians back into Lebanon, um, we left and uh, I met some friends in Tel Aviv. And then we, we got on a bus and we went to Egypt and uh saw the pyramids saw the, the valley of the kings uh we had some very exciting adventures uh on that that trip i mean i um i actually traveled there by myself uh and uh, ended up meeting them in cairo and and again you know this is pre-internet pre-cell phone i had a handwritten map on a journal to the 
hotel that I was going to meet these people with. And, uh, and, and so it's just, it's a miracle that I even found them and, and made it out alive. But, uh, but like I said, it, it turned into a great story. And then from there, went back to Israel, traveled around the country, and then went to, uh, went, went to Greece and then worked my way through uh, Western Europe and into uh, the UK and Scotland. So very quickly, I picked up about 10 countries. Wow, that's really amazing, especially pre-internet. I can imagine the, the experience, you know, it's quite difficult, I can imagine, but at the same time, you can savor more the moment because you're not distracted. Because I remember my last travel without a smartphone was in 2011. I went to Cambodia, and during the time, I didn't have a smartphone yet. And smartphones during the time were not very common. I was based in Thailand. So looking back, I'm, I'm reflecting once in a while and looking back at the travel, it's like, for me, it's a lot memorable just because I was able to, to really savor the place, the experience, because I didn't have a smartphone. Whenever I wanted to check the internet, I would go to an internet cafe. I remember that time when you have to go to an internet cafe to check emails. So that was the only time I had access to the internet. But most of the time, I was interacting with the locals and just immersing in the place because of the lack of this technology. I think that's one of the things that we are missing right now, like the, the real experience without without these smartphones. But I'm wondering though, because you've mentioned that you traveled, you first traveled internationally outside of the US when you were 18. And, and I'm thinking that that's quite late, especially comparing it to other countries like like European countries or Australia, for example, where most of them get to travel after graduating high school, for example, they have a gap here in the, U in, in the UK. And in the US, why do you think travel is not that popular in the US compared to other developed countries like in Europe or in Australia? Well, it was, it was actually even worse than you described. So eight, when I was 18, that's actually when I left the state of Florida. I did not travel internationally until I was, I think, 19 or 20. So, so it was even worse than you described. Now, I think, well, let me just back up. So back in, in, my, in my era, um, I think it just was so, to foreign international travel was just such a, it was such a foreign idea, meaning it was expensive. Um, the United States is so distant from both Asia and in Europe that, you know, international travel was going to Canada, or going to Mexico. Maybe you went to um, Bermuda or the Cayman Islands or, or the Caribbean. I mean, that's as, that's as exciting as really international travel got, unless you were much older. And, and there was this stereotype in the United States that, you know, you really waited until you retired before you did any international travel. Today, it's actually in the United States, I believe, a lot more common to see young people um, going overseas with their families in their in their teens or or preteens um, or or to even taking a gap year. So, for example, my uh, um, I have um, two uh, two nephews and a niece, and all three of them took a gap year between their graduating high school and their first year in college and spent it overseas. Um, my children, they all went 
somewhere internationally. Um, I believe we were in, uh, we went to Mexico, we've been to Canada, we went to Latin America. Um, they traveled to probably 30, 30 states in the United States before they went to college. Um, and then all three of them um, went somewhere internationally during, during their college years as well. So in fact, right now, my, uh, my youngest son is 27. He's, uh, he's in Greece. You know, he, he thinks him and his wife, they think nothing of, of getting on a plane and, and going somewhere. In fact, I think they even sent, they spent the summer during, uh, during their college years, they spent it in, uh, in Thailand. Yeah, I think it's changing nowadays in terms of travel because I remember back then, even here in the Philippines, because I thought it was just here in the Philippines just because, you know, we are still a developing country. I didn't know that even in the U.S. before travel is not very common because I remember back then here in the Philippines, when you say international travel, most of the people who travel internationally are just those who are doing business or for mm -hmm. work. It's not, it's very uncommon to to hear people traveling for vacation to ab abroad. Usually we just do domestic travels here before and, and for vi for international vacations, you, the common destinations here are Singapore, Hong Kong, or pro uh, the U S it's so unheard of before. Like when you, when you hear someone now saying, I'm going to go to Cambodia or, or to Vietnam for a vacation back then, it's like, that's so unheard of. <laughs> So I guess it's, it's really changing and, and I didn't realize that even in the U.S. It was, it was the same, like it was not very popular back then. I think there's a couple of, I think there's a couple of reasons for that. One, I think it's cost. It's, it's a lot less expensive um, to travel internationally than it used to. I mean, for me to go internationally 20 years ago, it was like a thousand dollars to go anywhere. Now you, it's not unheard of to find really, really inexpensive tickets for only a few hundred dollars to go to South America or go to Iceland for three ninety nine. I mean, it's you know these, this is like crazy, crazy prices. So I think one is just, just the cost of travel is going down, and there's a lot more options to travel too. I mean, I mean, a lot more airlines, a lot more competitive structure, which of course is driving the price down. I think the second thing that's is much more important is the scared factor, their fear factor of going overseas, you know, Oh, I don't know the language. I don't know where I'm going to stay. I don't know, you know, a lot of, I don't know. Well now, you know, there, there's not only so many guidebooks, but really, I mean, who gets a guidebook anymore? It's websites, you know, it's websites, it's Instagram, it's Twitter, it's Facebook. You pretty much can go anywhere you want and find a great place to stay that fits your budget. You can meet people, pick someone that you like and start talking to them and chances are good. They're friendly and they're going to talk back. And then next thing you know, you have three places to go and people that people that you know in the country. And obviously you want to be careful because there's safety issues you want to be concerned about, but you know, more times than not, you're going to, it's easy to meet people that you feel comfortable with and makes you feel comfortable about, traveling to another country. Right. So I think the internet really changed things, especially regarding the travel scene. And if you look at photos of your friends, for example, on Instagram or on Facebook, you would realize that, oh, he was able to do that. Maybe I can do it as well. That's actually yes. doable going to, for example, going to Vietnam. It's not, oh, 
apparently it's not dangerous because he was able to do it so it's doable i can do it as well so yeah i think the internet played a huge role regarding the the making That's travel very common Exactly. That's exactly right. I mean, I know I personally, even though I've been to many places around the world that I, I, I never knew anyone before I went there. On the flip side, there's also been a number of countries that I've been to where I've been very fortunate enough, either from business or personal relationships to go to locations where I know someone. And it just it makes the visit you know, that much more delightful. I mean, one time I went to Hong Kong and it was like I emailed it wasn't even a friend of mine it was like a, a friend of a friend kind of like hey i'm going to hong kong do you know someone it's like yeah you know contact my friend you know eric and eric will will you know will help you so i reach out to eric and eric says oh it'll be great to see you um meet me for lunch in central near the star ferry and i'm thinking okay great you know we'll go have you know tea or lunch well Eric spends the whole day with me and he takes me to wet markets and he takes me to the great Buddha on Lantau Island. And, and I'm just like floored that this person who was probably 10, 15 years older than me would drop his entire day on a weekend to hang out with me to play tour guide. It was awesome. It was great. I, I could never have, I could never have planned that type of visit. And Hong Kong is one of your favorite destinations, right? Oh, I love Hong Kong. Actually, I, I love pretty much most of Asia. I, uh, I, I have a, an affinity for that part of the world. And I, I couldn't tell you why I do, but um, I, I just really thoroughly have enjoyed every time I've been able to visit there. And the people that I meet are, are, are so kind and friendly. And the food is awesome. And... Of course, because of the way that ge geography is, it, the proximity to other countries is very close too. So, um, for example, I, I lived in Singapore for a couple of years as an expatriate, and I was very fortunate. I visited roughly, I think, 15, 16 countries while I was there and, and saw things that had been on my list of places I've wanted to see for decades. And, and because I was living there, and had a geographic location of very close proximity, you know, four hours to India, seven, eight hours to Sydney, seven, eight hours to New Zealand, seven hours to Japan, three hours to Hong Kong, um, you know, and all within one or two, three time zone differences. It's just, you know, you can't beat it. And you've circumnavigated the world. You're, in fact, you're one of the members of the Board of Governors of one of the most exclusive travel clubs in the world, the Circumnavigators Club. I think that's really amazing. And probably you're even one of those who approved my application <laughs> for the Well, I, I, I'm, happy, I'm, happy that, I'm happy that you are also a member of the Circumnavigators because there's, uh, there's many of us out there who have this shared love of travel, who have um, circumnavigated the globe. And, uh, and, and it's, um, it's a limited number of people who have done this. And that's what really one of the really fun elements of this club is it really brings together these people from all over the world, like yourself, who have um, completed a circumnavigation. And, and today, you know, you know, we should explain what, what that means to circumnavigate 
the world. It's not like Magellan in the 1500s where you're getting on a boat and you're, you're headed west and, you know, you're hoping that the world is not flat. Right. So how did you do your first circumnavigation? Or how many times did you circumnavigate the, the world? Did you, did you do it a lot uh, of well, officially, or... Yeah. Well, officially, I've only done it one time. Okay. Um, but I've, I've done a lot of, you know, partial navig circumnavigations, but officially one time. And, and for the Circumnavigators Club, the way it works is if you can demonstrate that you have gone around the world starting and ending in the same point, going in the same direction, so east to east, west to west. Um, and you don't even have to do it in one trip. You can do it in multiple trips. So my circumnavigation, uh, I lived in uh, Boulder, Colorado. My airport was, uh, was Denver. And so um, I flew from Denver to uh, uh, Dulles Airport in Washington, D.C., to Frankfurt Airport. And I'd actually made that trip many, many times. I had... Uh, uh, I had people that worked for me outside of Frankfurt, so I was constantly traveling there. I'd been to Vienna a number of times. The way to get to Vienna is you have to fly through Frankfurt to get there. But anyway, so that was like, you know, flying from, from Denver east to, uh, to Frankfurt. And then while I was living in Singapore, I had to go to Bratislava, Slovakia. And uh, for those who don't know, uh, to get to Bratislava, you again, you're flying through Frankfurt Airport. Um, and so, uh, so what I did is that was my uh, my return. So when I is starting from Frankfurt, flew back to Singapore, then to Tokyo, and then to Denver. Wow. So I can draw so I could draw a path from Denver to Dulles to Frankfurt to Singapore to Tokyo to, Tokyo. to Denver. Oh, yeah. great, great. Yeah. So being a member of this club, what are some of the highlights or your favorite moments, memorable moments? Well, the club is a very interesting club because, you know, especially in the in the pandemic. So, you know, you're not exactly going to going to a lot of meetings anymore. So the Circumnavigators Club is really because the membership is really spread all over the world. There's a number of areas where there's concentrations, like New York City is a big concentration. Singapore is a concentration. London is a concentration. Uh, Naples, Florida, for example. Um, you know, they, those, are area, those are groups that have regular meetings. Um, I, I was, I'm affiliated with the Pacific Southwest United States, which their meetings are held in La Jolla, uh, which is outside of San Diego. So for me, that's a, like a two hour drive. Uh, to get there. And, and so, you know, I'm not going to every, every, every meeting for, for various reasons. So the circumnavigator club, the way it's the value that it brings to me is a couple of things. One, there's a great magazine called the log, which, uh, which I really, uh, really love. There's some really great articles in that and it introduces you to a lot of great people. Um, there's a number of uh, Zoom broadcasts, which you can join where again, you meet some very interesting, interesting people. But the really the best part for me is when I'm in some of these cities where I can go to our directory and I can look up, okay, who in this, I'm visiting this city and I've got some time. Is there a circumnavigator or a club there that I can call and meet some people. And, and I've done that on a couple of occasions. And, um, and one time I was actually in New York city and coincidentally they had a meeting there. 
And so I went, I went to this, it was more of a cocktail party and I went to the cocktail party and, and again, I met the most interesting, amazing people um, who had all traveled all over the world. Of course, um, you know, my 50 countries, ha, huh, you know, it, it, it didn't even compare, you know, it's like you 50 countries just kind of got you to the, to the poker table. You needed to, to be really be impressive. You had to do over a hundred countries. Um, and, you know, some of the people that are part of this club, there are people that have traveled to 200 countries. In fact, the, the person who's, I forgot the gentleman's name, the person that has the, the most, the fattest passport on, in the Guinness Book of World Records, he's a member of this club. And then there's the gentleman who's traveled to the most countries in the world. And, and there's several people who have traveled to every country in the world. And even you and I know this, but a lot of people listening probably don't, but because of various geopolitical activities that are going on, countries kind of come and go on a regular basis. And so there's always a new country popping up or a country disappearing. And so to keep their standards of being able to say they've been to every country in the world, they go to, they keep traveling. But my favorite story is I met this woman and she's, she's much older. I think she was probably in her eighties, maybe even early nineties when I met her. And um, we're all, we're telling stories about, oh, you know, I was in this city and I was in an elevator and the door opens and there's my first cousin. Or, you know, so, you know, so, so we're talking about these, these moments where you're just meeting someone completely out of context and completely unexpected. So, so we all tell our stories and then she tells her story. So, so this is essentially, this is her story. In the late 40s, after World War II, she's living in California. And she's dating her, uh, and, I, and I'm going to get the countries wrong, but just we'll, we'll use it for, uh, for the purposes of storytelling. And she's with her Greek boyfriend. And they're driving up the coast of Malibu trying to find a restaurant. And, and they stop into a restaurant uh, that you know, they just kind of randomly picked. And they walked in, and this guy who was bussing tables was his friend from Italy, who, and they fought together in the resistance during World War II. And they hadn't seen each other since 1942 because they both went off to their separate missions and right. they both thought the other one was killed. Oh, man. So she's there on this date with her Greek boyfriend and she's there witnessing this reunion between these two um, you know, partisan resistant fighters from World War II who were just so overjoyed that they're both seeing their friends after five, seven years, and, and both of them were alive. I mean, just imagine the, the, the serendipity in that experience. That's crazy. This, this, this is an awesome story. Wow. Yeah, these things happen, man. Like, you yeah. don't really expect it, but when you travel, a lot of things can happen. Exactly. A lot of unexpected things. Um, so really, so that's pretty much, I mean, that's, a, that's a really extreme example, but that's, that kind of example is when I go, go to these meetings or I go meet another circumnavigator, I learn these amazing stories and, and find about, find information about places that I've never been that from talking to them, it really piques my interest and really wants me to go travel to these places. 
Right, and I'm also looking forward to that. What, what, is is it a lunch like done usually done every year, especially before the pandemic in New York? Is it a lunch or a dinner? It's a like, di it's a dinner. It's a it's, it's a black it's, it's a, a black, black tie black tie dinner. Um, I was looking forward to that, but then the pandemic came. But I think that's one of the coolest things that that this club is doing. I, I and I think it's great too, and they have amazing people that that participate at these events um you know so for this and they're they're still working through the logistics but right before the pandemic they had scheduled ken burns to come out and and he was going to be the the keynote speaker um they've had uh john glenn the astronaut they've had neil armstrong there um they've had former presidents um of the united states and uh you know it, it's the the pedigree of this club, which is one of the things that I really, really love, is also amazing. I mean, the club was founded in the early 1900s, I think 1902. And, um, you know, some of the early people that founded this, this club or part of this club were uh, like um, Williams Jennings Bryan you know, who ran for president of the United States a number of times. Um, most people have heard of him because of the Scopes monkey trial in Tennessee, uh, which where they were taught, um, where the trial was the, you know, are you allowed to teach uh, evolution versus um, creationism in the United States, which at the time was a, was a big, uh, was a big topic of discussion, but, you know, he was a member of the club and he's, he submitted a, a, uh, a whale tooth to oh, the, uh, to the, yeah, to the, is this to the, the same that we're using right now? It is it's the same one. Wow, yes, it's that's... the same one. It's a whale tooth that he got, I believe, from South America, yeah. and uh, and it, he he's presented uh, for for the club. But uh, you have uh, Harry Houdini was was a member, you know, the magician. He was a member of the club for many years. Uh, Hubert Hoover, who was the president of the United States, he was a member of the club. Uh, John Philip Sousa, um, who was a, uh, he, he, he wrote many of the famous marches uh, in the early 1900s. Um, you know, again, again, you just have all these really amazing, this amazing pedigree of history. Um, and not just from the United States. There's people from all over the world who who have who, who have been members and who are members who have done just amazing, amazing travels. Actually, I was just reading the log again this morning before this interview, and and that's where I discovered that Ken Burns is actually a real person. I really didn't know that before because I always see his name on 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 Movie Maker or, or iMovie on on Macintosh, right. right? So I thought it's like okay, Ken Burns. I have to 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 click this one, but I didn't know that it's it's actually a real person. And I just found out that he was inducted to the Magellan what do you call that thing Magellan something. Yeah, the or, the order of order the, the order of the Magellan of the Circumnavigators Club. And actually, the first time I came across her name was when I received this log year 20, 2019 when you won the photo contest photography oh, contest right. of yeah. the log and and that's where it came across your name for the first time because you got a first prize and it's an amazing photo yeah the Bhutan archer this one <laughs> yes it's an amazing photo and I just found out that you've published a book this year which is called the Himalaya, 
Himalaya memories. Correct. Right. So wow, you're also into photography, and I think there's an amazing picture, and you've spent a lot of time in the Himalaya. So. Can you tell us more about your experience in the Himalayas? Because that is one of my dream destinations. I really wanted to to be there, whether that be in Nepal, Bhutan, or Tibet. In fact, I almost booked a a trip to Tibet when I was living in China because my dream is to be at the Everest base camp because there are two sides. One is in Tibet and in Nepal. So I almost went to Tibet, but there something happened. So wasn't able to do it, but it's still my dream. And you were able to really actually do it. And you went into the other side, which is the Nepal side of the Everest base camp, which is, I think, more difficult because you need to hike. Correct. Al- that's, yeah. that's, that's exactly right. The Tibetan side, I've been told, you can almost drive to it. Yeah, drive to it. Although it's difficult because of the elevation, but you don't need to right. hike. But what you did was you hike. And tell us more about that experience and why are you so fascinated about the Himalayas and you even publish a book about it? Well, it's um, it's same same as you. I've I've wanted to go there for many many decades, and I um I finally hooked up with a friend of mine who lives in New York, and and we were talking about going to the Himalayas, and we 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 set a date, and we said we're doing it. Let's go, and and so once we set it, we pretty much just focused on how do we make that happen. And uh, so we, uh, so our trip was about three, three, three plus weeks in Nepal. And uh, so we flew to Kathmandu and, and we spent a couple of days in one of the little local suburb areas called Bhaktapur. And just so happened while we were there, there, there's a, a festival, I believe it's a Hindu festival called Diwali. And, um, and it's very popular in, in India and Southeast Asia and in there, and as well as in Nepal. And, um, it was, it was wild. Um, you know, there was drums all night and people dancing and music and fires and animal sacrifices. And, you know, for, for a Westerner, not used to all that, it was pretty, um, it was very overwhelming, but it was also, you know, amazing. And so anyways, we spent three days in Bhaktapur and experienced that. And then we flew to Lukla and, uh, and Lukla, is a town at roughly uh, it's roughly nine thousand feet, um, so I believe that's roughly around three thousand meters or so, and um, and and that's where you start your your trek, and to get to Mount Everest Base Camp, which is the trek I went on, it's around eight to ten days to oh, get there. Oh man, that's tough. And you uh, it was it's like. Um, you know, I don't know the kilometer translation, but it's um it's an 80 mile round trip. So it's um, you know, so you know, again, it's probably 140 kilometers or so, but it's a it's a pretty intense trip. In fact, I I've done a lot of hiking around the world. I lived in Colorado for a lot of time where I, I was able to do some a lot of high elevation hiking there. But my my uh 13, 14 day trek. Mount Everest Space Camp and back was probably one of the most difficult things I've ever done. And what made it so difficult, um, besides the fact there there is no tra- there is no mechanized transportation there. You are walking. You're either walking or you're on a horse. And in fact, all the stuff they carry, all the goods, you know, beer and food, and uh, it, they carry it up there. You know, there's there's Sherpas with stuff like 
behind the uh, attached to their head as they hike up the mountains. And these people, they, they like bounce up the mountain like gazelles. Um, it's, it's amazing to watch, but anyway, so we, um, so, so we, we hiked um, and trekked up to there and we stay in uh, tea houses that used to be you'd stay in tents, but those days are over. Now you can stay in these tea houses, which, which are essentially like, uh, you know, some of them are very nice um, hotels. Some of them are like, uh, you know, wood, like, like there's a plywood floor and a plywood wall and no window. So it's, some of it is pretty, uh, is pretty scarce. And then um, once you get around, 4,000 meters or so, which I think is around 14,000 feet. Um, you know, the, the, and I don't know what it is about that mark, but once you get over there, the quality of the food deteriorates very quickly. Um, you're eating a lot of carbohydrates, so a lot of rice. Um, you can get some eggs, but they're not exactly plentiful. In fact, I had someone tell me, they said, look, if you don't see the chickens, don't eat the eggs. Um, a lot of the heat that is coming into these rooms are from uh, uh, yak chips and uh, that have been dried and they're flat and they've been dried and they they're dipped in kerosene, which is a carcinogen. And then they put them in these like stoves and they light them up. And that's, you have black smoke in these rooms and everyone's crowded around this little stove for, for heat. And you're like, God, am I going to get cancer by breathing this stuff in? Um, and then, of course, there's the altitude. And, uh, and a number of us took Diamox, which is a, a medicine which helps fake your body out right, to deal right. with the altitude. Um, but, but of the six people, there were six of us. We had six Sherpas and two guides as part of our team. And um, three of the six of us um, got some sort of altitude sickness. Fortunately, I did not. Um, I, I made it there and made it back. Um, although I, I lost a lot of weight, I lost probably f 15 pounds, um, which for me, I mean, I'm not a, I'm a bigger guy than I was then, but I'm not a big guy. So losing 15 pounds is a lot of weight. Um, and, uh, of course it was fun when I got back to Singapore, I was living in Singapore. When I got back to Singapore, I was like, great. I can have as many, uh, Frappuccinos as I want from Starbucks. Um, but anyway, on the way back, there was uh, there was three of the six of us that were really hurting. I mean, a lot slower on the way down, not sleeping well, headaches. So they they all encountered some form of altitude sickness. And on the last day, one of the uh, one of the people we were with, um, she was in such bad shape. We had to charter a horse for her to get her out. And and it wasn't like uh, oh, I'm gonna you know, go down this nice trail for an hour. It was eight hours on a horse doing elevation up, elevation down, up, down in very, very um, rugged terrain. So it wasn't exactly this easy ride to get this person back to Lukla and then getting, getting her into some sort of care in Kathmandu, which wasn't very uh, uh, top notch. And, uh, and then we had to get her out of the country to, to a Western more Western style hospital for her to get proper care. But um, I mean, it was, it got, it got pretty dicey towards the end. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, that's what I thought because going there is, it's not easy. And I've read some people, 
even died even just going to the to the Everest base camp because of of the altitude because of the yes. complications of it so when i when i saw your 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 post that you're able to do it i was like wow this is really a huge accomplishment especially hiking and Lukla, I heard is one of the scariest airports in the world, man. It's like, whoa, that's, that's one of my hesitation in doing that Everest base camp on that Nepal side because of that airport. I think I'm, I'm really scared landing on that airport. Well, the people that the people that are landing there, the pilots, they're very, very good at it. In fact, if, if for those of you that are listening, if you're not sure what we're talking about, go on YouTube and, and do a search on Lukla Airport Landing. And there's a lot of videos. In fact, I posted one on my uh, my YouTube channel, but that I that I took of a landing. But uh, it's it's a fun fun thing to watch. It's 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 pretty sketchy, but the people there that are flying those planes, they're pretty they're pretty good at it. That's that's the least of your worries on that trip. And you're also into photography. So, what made you fascinated in into photography? Well, I think, again, I was very fortunate growing up when I was very, very young, like 12, 13, uh, a, friend of, a friend of my father's um, presented me with a, a camera and a couple of lenses. And back then it was 35 millimeter film um, for me to experiment and see if this was something that I enjoyed. And, and it was a hobby that I really loved. And uh, fortunately, it was something that uh, people, people liked the photographs I used to take and and uh, so, you know, I got that positive affirmation that, uh, you know, I, I, I didn't think I was any good, but other people thought I was good. So, hey, you know, go with it. Um, and, and so anyway, so I, and it really allowed me to capture a lot of the beauty of, of travel. I mean, I think, in, in fact, I think that's what, what we see today in the popularity and uh, sites like Instagram and Facebook is all these pictures with, you know, because everyone's got a, a really a great camera. Um, you know, anyone who's got a smartphone has got a great camera at their availability so they can take pictures of anything they want. And, and there's a lot of great pictures that are coming out there in the world. And I think it's that fascination that I had um, back in the old days, shooting 35 millimeter film, going to these places around the world that, uh, you know, you come back with really great memories. But at the end of the day, it's the pictures that really, you know, hold you to the story of, of your adventure and your travels. In fact, if you go on my, uh, my website, pulldy.com, where I display a, a, a small fraction of my photographs, there's something in there called classics. Yeah. I saw that one. Yeah. So those are Amazing. 35. Yeah. Those are 35 millimeter photographs that I took in the eighties. And, uh, uh, and there's a number of pictures there from my trip to Europe, that, that first trip to Europe. And you can see in there, for example, the pictures of uh, uh, in uh, in the old city of Jerusalem. You can see the Dome of the Rock, and you can see all these TV antennas all, all over the place. And there's a picture that I uh, I took of of I was in Tulum in Mexico, and Tulum is an old Mayan ruin. And um, and I took a picture with uh, a couple of my friends. Well, I hadn't thought of those people in years. And and what's really interesting about that photograph is if you go to Tulum today, it is so developed, um, you couldn't duplicate that photograph. Yeah, I saw those photos on your website, and it's really amazing, especially looking at the colors. And I think you can really see the difference between film and and digital. 
and I, I I'm really just drawn towards film, especially the the end result of it, like the color combination. It reminded me of of Steve McCurry's Kodachrome days. Yeah, the, the 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 color is is just very hard to to emulate nowadays with digital. And looking at your photos on your website website i was like whoa and you were using a 35 mm which is a classic like favorite of travel photographers and and i i heard you you you're using leica nowadays as well which is a, a very you know a very wonderful camera so i think that's really amazing you're combining traveling and photography producing these wonderful images yeah thank you it's um it is quite amazing in fact going back to the, the the website one of the photographs on there which is one of my personal favorites it's it's a picture of a of a hieroglyphics and it's taken inside a tomb in the valley of the kings in egypt near luxor egypt across the nile and this this picture which was shot on 35 millimeter it's in it it's inside a tomb i don't remember which one and the way i shot it um because you couldn't use flash or artificial lights inside these tombs, um, the guide stood at the entrance with a mirror and reflected the light of the sun onto that wall. And then I shot the picture on the wall without any flash photography. And you look at the colors, the, you know, the inks that they use to paint those hieroglyphics. And the, those hieroglyphics are thousands of years old. It's just, it just amazes me how beautiful you know the those antiquities have been preserved right what what camera were you using the time uh that camera was a uh was a, a minolta i can't remember the, the 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 model number but it was a minolta 35 millimeter and i had a 35 millimeter lens on it wow amazing and and during the i'm not familiar with those cameras but they also need to adjust like the iso equivalent probably called asa during the time right uh, film exactly. Do you have to adjust? Yeah, you have to. Well? You, yeah, you have to adjust just everything, and 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 that's one of the things that I mean. I'm I'm old school. I mean, I, I <laughs> even though it's nice to go automatic and use whatever they tell you, um, I like being able to adjust. You know, what's the ISO rating of of this particular shot? What's the speed that I want to shoot the picture? What's the f stop or the aperture of the lens so I can get the depth of field? that um you know that's a that's appropriate meaning do i want to have the background fuzzy do i want to have it clear you know how much of the foreground is clear and so there's a lot of um mechanics in science in taking a photograph versus just you know point and point and shoot but but hey there's a lot of moments where point and shoot is really good <laughs> yeah especially for composition you know you don't have to think a lot of things just point and shoot and yeah you've 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 mentioned that you're old school, you like this stuff, very manual, analog, but then you're using Leica and Leica is known for, you know, it's, even though it's digital, they kind of stick to that analog feel, you know, of, of the, it's very mechanical as well. So I think you have the, a great camera, even though you're using, you're shooting digital nowadays. Yeah. In fact, uh, you know, I talk cameras for a couple of minutes when I was in, uh, when I went to Nepal and Bhutan, I wanted a, uh, I actually, before I left the United States uh, to go on my adventure in Asia, I actually walked into a camera store in Seattle. And, and I always thought that Leica cameras were, were, they're very expensive. Their quality is great, but they're also very expensive. And I always thought they were some things I could not afford. 
Um, but I walked into the Seattle camera store and they had a, a Leica camera. It was a compact camera called a Leica Deluxe 5. And uh, it probably was you know, no bigger than an iPhone 12. I mean, it's, it, it was thicker, but, 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 but roughly that size. And, it, and I, something I could slide in my pocket. And, and it was a 10 megapixel camera, which at the time in 2012, that was actually a pretty decent, uh, yeah. decent camera. And so I, I, it was affordable and they made me a great deal at the camera store in Seattle. So I bought it and um, I shot with that camera um, almost everywhere I went. In fact, in my book, Himalaya Memories, almost all my pictures were shot with that Leica Deluxe 5. In fact, that picture that you mentioned, the Bhutan Archer, which people can also see on, on my website, um, that was shot with, a Delu with this Leica Deluxe 5 small compact camera, which it was just amazing the quality of photographs I was able to, uh, to glean from that, that camera. Amazing, amazing German technology. And you're also into Porsche cars. So it's one of my favorite cars. And, and you do it as a hobby. You drive Porsches and you go to Germany. Wow, I think it's, it's, it's an amazing hobby, especially Porsche German technology. It was, uh, it, it's something that, again, something that uh, I've, I've worked very hard for. And uh, when I, uh, I, I actually uh, moved, when I moved to California, the Porsche that we're talking about is a Porsche 356. And uh, so I have a 1963 Porsche 356. Um, so the car is almost as old as I am. And uh, this particular car, I, uh, in California, there's actually a lot of them here it's it's it the it's one of at the time it was the largest uh porsche market in the world were these for these cars and uh so there's a lot of them out here and so when i moved here i realized i could i could get one so i uh, i joined a club and and this is something i recommend to anyone who's looking at a car uh like especially an older car if if you don't know much about these vehicles it's not like buying a used car like you would buy a normal used car i mean there's a lot of um, there's a lot of specifics and, and particular um, nuances of these older vehicles that you really just don't know about unless you do a lot of research. And the best way to do research is to go meet people um, who are part of these car clubs. And pretty much any car, any car that you're looking for, there's probably a car club for, you know, the Austin Healey Club, the Jaguar XKE E-Type Clubs, the um, you know, Ford Thunderbird Club, you know, there, there's a club for every car. And uh, so anyway, so I found in Southern California, the Porsche, the, the 356 Club of Southern California. And so I joined that club and I joined the board. I'm actually the president of that club right now. And, um, wow. and I learned about these cars and I met people who told me what was a good, good car to buy and what cars to stay away from. And, and they got me, uh, they got me hooked on to, with this really fantastic car that I've had now for about four years. And, uh, I've, uh, I've driven that car all over the United States. One of, one of my, uh, one of my favorite things, not favorite, one of my, um, you know, goals was to drive cross country from the Atlantic ocean to the Pacific ocean. And uh, so I was able to uh, take my Porsche 356 and I, I actually had it transported to, uh, to Jacksonville, Florida, where I'm originally from and uh, spent some time with my father. And then I hopped in the car and I drove it across the country, 3000 miles in nine days. Wow. When did you do this? 
Uh, I did this right at the beginning of the pandemic in the United States. So I did it the March of 2020. Because so, I read an article on the log. Were you the one who yes, I read this article? Exactly. Oh, wow. That's that, a- that was when I was reading yes. the article in the Log magazine, I was like, "Whoa, this is one of my dream trips to actually do a a a road trip, a long long drive using a classic car, whatever car, as long as it's classic." I, I was thinking before Volkswagen Beetle because that's oh, more yeah. af- more affordable. <laughs> like Porsche is expensive, but that was my dream. And when I saw the article in the log and I was like, whoa, this man is living the dream, man. And it's even better because he's driving a classic Porsche. And and you've mentioned there that one of the challenges is because you're driving an old car, you have this at the back of your mind that it might break, you know, and it's just a matter of time because it's, it's old. But then you're able to pull it off. And I think it's, it's one of the most amazing trips that you can do. I didn't know it was you. <laughs> that's, that's crazy. <laughs> Oh, that's that's funny. Yeah, that was it just just as you described. I mean, it's something I've I've always wanted to have this long cross country solo trip in an old old classic car. And and I was very fortunate that, you know, all the all the the moon and stars aligned for me to take this trip. And then of course the pandemic. So with each day, there was a little bit. I felt like the screws were just tightening a little bit more. You know, was, was the hotel going to be open? Was was I going to be able to find a restaurant or a gas station open? Uh, were they going to close the border at the state of California state line so I wouldn't be able to get home? I mean, there, you know, all these things go through your head as, as this, all this craziness was unfolding in the United States. But, you know, on the flip side, I'd be in New Orleans and at a, a restaurant that would be packed with people. And, uh, and then I was in uh, this little artist town in Texas called Marfa, Texas. And uh, the Marfa, Texas, the, the cl- town's claim to fame, there's actually a couple, but one of them is they filmed uh, uh, the movie Giant there with Rock Hudson and James Dean and um, um, oh, I'm forgetting the, uh, um, there, there was one other, uh, one other famous, uh, famous star in that. But, uh, but anyway, it's, it's this amazing um you know, this amazing artist town and, and they're all partying like, uh, you know, Corona beers with a, a little sticky, it says virus on it. You know, here's the coronavirus. Yeah, I think that's ultimate freedom. And I think the best way to do it is to travel, to drive solo. Like it's, it's going to be a different experience, you know, okay, you're in, a, you're in a new town driving and then you have to look for a hotel, spend the night at a, at a hotel or a motel and then, and then resume travel the next day i think that's ultimate freedom and i really wanted to do it it was it was fabulous but also as you described i mean in the back of your head it's every time you get in the car is it <laughs> yeah. going to start is it is something going to fail i mean i had a um i had a, a the, there's no real oil temperature gauge on these cars you know it's just like a needle and you don't know how accurate it is so every time i stop for gas i'm taking a a dipstick with a temperature gauge on it and I'm sticking Whoa. it in the engine to see how hot the car is. But it, it, it's air-cooled, right? Because it's a Porsche? Correct. So it's air-cooled. Right. Wow. Right. So you don't have to put water, you know, you don't have to worry about water. Wow, amazing. This next part of the podcast episode has sensitive subject matter regarding suicide. If you're in a crisis or you think you may have an emergency, call your doctor immediately. If you're having suicidal thoughts, 
talk to a skilled, trained counselor at a crisis center in your area. And I just have to switch a little bit here because I've I've read your pod, I've listened to your podcast in one of the podcasts on the internet. You've talked about suicide, and I was listening to it and looking at these people who travel a lot. I, I I see you as living the dream, living your life, going to amazing places, having these resources. But then at the same time, life is not perfect, man. You've you've struggled with this uh, mental health issue about depression and things that we cannot control so you've talked about how you're able to to go through this uh, terrible time of your life so can you please share this share this a little bit to our listeners because especially nowadays a lot of people are suffering from mental health issues because of the pandemic yeah so let me add some context uh to the to the conversation so um in 2009, my, my first wife, uh, she, she took her life uh, for suicide. And that experience um, was devastating. And in fact, the word devastating isn't deep enough. It doesn't describe the pain and the anguish that you go through when you lose a loved one in that way. Um, and and you know, from that experience, even though I had experienced um, m- you know mental uh, depression and in, in personally uh, in my life, it wasn't to the point that I was willing to take my life. So it never got that bad um, for me. But it was something that you know I was familiar with. But again, when when my first wife took her life, I mean that that just set it on a completely new level. And and I was a suddenly a single father, um, you know, raising three boys of which my oldest was, uh, was a freshman in college. Maybe. Yeah. I think he was a freshman in college and my youngest was a, uh, uh, was a freshman in high school. So it was, um, you know, you, you lose a spouse in such a dramatic way. You still have the responsibility of being a parent and you still have to you know, earn a living. Um, so you have all these things going on at the, at the same time. So, um, you know, it, it's taken me years to, um, to really rebuild my life to such a point that I could have these types of experiences, um, you know, that we've been describing um, here, where, you know, you're, you're not going to be um, you're not going to be doing this, living this kind of lifestyle, doing these these things if you are have some mental health issue going on in the background. You just it, it just distracts you. It takes your focus away. Um, it, 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 there's a cloudiness going on. So what, where I've spent a lot of my time um, since um, since my wife died in 2009 is I've spent a lot of time working with other people who are uh, survivors of, of suicide, meaning that they have lost a, a loved one uh, to suicide. And um, I've, uh, I'm always happy to talk about my journey. Um, my journey is my journey. It's not, everyone goes through their own experiences. And this is something that, that people need to understand. Um, you know, if, if they lose a loved one 
to suicide. And I can certainly tell people what I did and how I responded and, you know, the things I did that were very positive and the things I did that weren't so positive. Everyone does it their own way. And so it's kind of like by talking to people, there's, you, you learn, you learn things to help you through your journey. And, and you also gives you the confidence to know that you're not the only person going through this. Um, and so in addition to helping people on my own, I've also spent some time in Los Angeles working with Didi Hirsch Mental Health Services, where they work with survivors. They also help do a lot with suicide prevention. Um, um, they are a, a nationally recognized uh, organization in the fight against suicide and helping people um, who have lost a loved one through suicide. And so I work with them and volunteer um, probably about 16 to 24 weeks a year, um, working with uh, other suicide survivors like myself. And, and I usually meet people where they've either just lost a loved one, may, may have been within a few months, uh, to people that have, have lost someone maybe even a few years ago, and they're still struggling with uh, how to get through it. And, and for me personally, um, even though the first year was extremely hard. I'll have to say it probably was five, five years, six years before I felt that I was in much closer to the person I was before, um, before my loss. So it's, it's not something that you recover quickly. Um, and it's something that you never forget. And, and quite frankly, I'll say that it changes you forever. You never, ever will be the same person you were after that experience. Yeah, first of all, sorry about that. And thank you for sharing your journey. I remember on the podcast, you've mentioned that some people might think that you need to really get over this one. But you've mentioned that once this happens, it's going to be with you forever. It's not going to go away. But the thing is, you just need to live with it. Yeah, it's part of your life. It, your DNA, it, I, I tell people, I mean, think of it this way. Your, your, your DNA has, has evolved, you know. You know, the, the, you know, your, your, your body has now changed into a, a, a new, a new form and your mind has changed and you have to kind of figure out a way to work through that, through that change. Since you love traveling, did you also use travel as a coping mechanism during those trying times? I, yes. The, the short answer is I absolutely did use travel as a coping mechanism for me. Um, I think it's, uh, I think the change was very valuable to me, uh, in terms of getting me into a, a new environment and forcing me, uh, to, to move forward and make decisions versus sitting at home where, um, you're doing the same thing. It's not requiring you to, to push yourself. Um, so travel, travel for me was absolutely part of my therapy, um, I, I think overall it was, it was, it was great. I mean, it, it like I said, it, it helped me. It allowed me to meet new people. It allowed me to experience new adventures. Um, it allowed me to, to really push my mind out of that, you know, spin loop of, of sadness and grief. And even though I was still sad and, and grieving, but because I was traveling, it forced me to, to kind of move into a direction. I don't, I, I don't know if it forward is the right, the right word, but it forced me to move. 
and it forced me to think and it forced me to to recognize that there is a life out there and there are exciting things that can still happen to you and and i think this is one of the points that i made in that hope out of darkness podcast that you were mentioning is that um you know you even though you've lost a loved one um you're still alive you you have to live your life and and you can't let yourself get dragged down into that depression um that ultimately took the life of your loved one because it can happen it's very easily could happen i mean i i felt myself going there many many times in those early early months it's interesting that you've mentioned traveling as as a coping mechanism or moving sort of way because i've also read before or listened to a podcast where one of these famous boxer tyson fury was so depressed that he ended up attempting suicide a lot of times and he said that those thoughts come into his mind whenever he's alone and not doing anything so he needs to work out he needs to move and i think that that's one of the the important points that we can take there that that moving is, is essential during these trying times as well you know and again i think you know the important thing is that that's what worked for me um you know i'm not i'm not suggesting that that that's going to work for everyone, but it's certainly something that was very helpful for me and that, you know, it's something should people think about. I think really the most important thing that really did help me that I encourage everyone to do that is um, suffering some, sort of, some form of mental illness or maybe has lost someone to suicide is go seek a uh, trained therapist or grief counselor who is um, a professional and is someone that really is can be your guide and can advise you in terms of what you're trying to do or what you're thinking of doing and, and can help you really think through that because you may be like well i'm just gonna go to go to antarctica and uh and you know maybe it's not the right place for you to go <laughs> to recover <laughs> from such a tragic loss <laughs> you know maybe if you want to travel go just go just go downtown and have a staycation for a couple of days and test test that out first but but the point is is have a, have someone who's a trained authority who understands who's had lots of experience who's with how recoveries are possible and can really act in your best interest as an independent sounding board before you do something that unfortunately you may regret later. Thank you once again for sharing that one, Michael, sharing your journey to others. And yeah, I know Antarctica is one of your bucket lists now. <laughs> you want to complete the seven continents. <laughs> yes. Yes. I'm now in a good part. I'm now in a good part of my life that Antarctica is a good place. Is, to go. Yeah. Great. Great. That's good to know. Thank you for being on the podcast. So before we end, do you have any final message or listeners regarding travel, especially for those who dream of traveling the world like what you did? Well, I think travel is, is absolutely one of the really great equalizers, meaning that for people who travel, they get an experience and an exposure to the world that they are never going to get by sitting it at home and and 
they recognize that really, even though I think it's a little cliche, I think it's also very true that, um, you know, that you meet a lot of people around the world that are very similar to where you are. You know, they may not look like you and they may not eat the same foods and they may not have grown up in the same type of house or went to the same type of school. But, you know, inside, there's a lot of common traits and, and common virtues that, that we all share across the planet. And once you travel and experience it, it's, it, it's very eye-opening to what, what's going on in this world. So I, um, I encourage you to, to think big and, and dream big. And, and, and uh, of course, if you're interested in, uh, in, in seeing some of the pictures that we talked about here, I mean, please go to my website, puldy.com. Uh, it's puldy.com, and uh, there's a uh, there's a contact uh, form on there. And if you have any questions, I'm I'm happy happy to help. Thank you once again for being here. I appreciate it so much. And before we end, I'm gonna just read this quote. And then there is the most dangerous risk of all, the risk of spending your life not doing what you want on the bet you can buy yourself the freedom to do it later from Randy Commissar. Thank you guys for tuning in. This has been your host, Regin. Till the next episode.